Hello and welcome to this episode of DIT ON, the podcast brought to you by the Royal Naval Association. I'm your host, Jenna Brodie, and the topic of today's episode is a history of Britannia Royal Naval College. Today's guest I am delighted to introduce is Dr Jane Harold. Welcome Jane. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you very much for coming. So a brief intro to Jane for those of you that may not know her. Dr Jane Harold is a lecturer in strategic studies at BRNC and she has been since 1997. She is the college's archivist and was involved in the creation of the Britannia Museum in 99 of which she is the curator. She has published a book on the college Britannia Royal Naval College, an illustrated history of which she was awarded the Sir Robert Craven Trophy. She is also an editor of the Britannia Naval Histories of World War II, published by the Britannia Museum, which is based on the staff histories written after the war. She has also provided the introduction to the staff history of the Battle of Cape Matapan, for which Prince Philip provided the foreword, giving his only published first-hand account of this battle. So you are the expert in Britannia Royal Naval College and the perfect guest for this episode. So thank you so much, Jane, for coming. So let's dive right in. Now, I read a fact from your book, which was quite interesting, that Dartmouth is the world's second largest consumer of PIMS. Is that still the case? Uh, it used to be true. Certainly it was true uh, when we wrote the book to, in 2005. Unfortunately, the last time I asked for a pins in the wardroom, uh, the girl behind the bar didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> and my colleague had to uh, show her uh, how to make a pin. So I suspect that's no longer the case, but it certainly once was. Yeah, I think it more, might be more gin and tonic now, because that's definitely that was definitely the drink of choice when I was there. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and I think it was about £1.10, which was an absolute bargain for a G&T. I think, I think the wardrobe prices are still pretty good. It has to be said, the cheapest drink in Dartmouth anyway. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely <laughs> it. Okay, Jane, so shall we, we're going to take a walk down memory lane, hopefully in a sort of chronological order, but if we jump around, that's fine. So I want to go back to 1863, when there was no college it was two hulks of previous ships HMS Britannia and HMS Hindustan is that correct? That's correct yeah HMS Britannia arrived uh, in 1863 uh, having briefly been based in Portsmouth uh, before it's decided that Portsmouth was was not really an appropriate environment for impressionable uh, young gentlemen uh, <laughs> More, more suitable surroundings were sought and Dartmouth fit the build. So Britannia came to the River Dart and, and followed a year later by Hindustan. Wow. And so did the, did the, were they students then? Were they classed as students or cadets? What were they classed as? Well, they were called cadets. Yeah. Uh, they were basically schoolboys because, of course, until the middle of the 1950s even, Dartmouth was essentially a school. Mm. They joined as civilians, uh, and although they wore naval cadets uniforms and they had their naval as well as their civilian instructors, and they obviously had their seamanship and navigation classes as well as their, their maths and their English and their history and their geography, they weren't actually in the Navy until they left Dartmouth as midshipmen. So essentially they were schoolboys. Occasionally they're listed as, uh, as being in the Navy. They're in the Navy lists anyway. But they didn't receive naval pay and they weren't subject to naval discipline. So to all intents and purposes, they were just schoolboys. And how long would they spend on 
Britannia or Hindustan then what was the duration of their training or education? So it, cha it changed it changed from from time to time but sort of three to four years so it was basically they joined at around the age of 13 so the normal age when a boy who would normally have gone to a public school would have left prep school to go to Eton or Harrow or, or Winchester or wherever and then they would have completed around 17 18 years old to carry on with their their, their training to to go to sea for a bit and then launch their careers in the Royal Navy absolutely yeah so they so this went on for about what 40 years before they built the cottage that's right by the 1890s Britannia and Hindustan are looking really past their use-by date uh, and actually the original Britannia didn't even manage to last a decade that the Britannia that that you see in most of the illustrations in books and around the college actually arrived in 1869 so she had slightly less time uh, at Dartmouth but even by 1869 the, the, the wooden sailing ship was obviously being overtaken by technology so and by the 1890s sail and, and wooden ships had been replaced by, by steel hulled ships and, and steam so it really didn't make sense to educate the 20th century naval officers that they were going to be using this technology which was already pretty much half a century uh, out of date. Plus there just wasn't the, the room. Um, the Navy was expanding, particularly at the turn of the century, the rising threat across Europe, particularly Germany, seeing the requirement to, to build more ships, which obviously needed more people to, to man them. And of course, ships were, were more manpower intensive uh, back then. And so hence the need to build a, a bigger, more modern college. And also importantly, one that was going to project a particular image. College is, is definitely designed to impress people, particularly to, to impress foreigners. It's not really a coincidence, although it wouldn't have been obvious at the time, perhaps, but the, the same year that the, the foundations were built to the college, uh, 1898, is the, the year of the first German Navy laws which were the Kaiser's first public declaration of intent, really, that he wanted to build a navy which would challenge the Royal Navy to build an empire, to challenge the British Empire. Uh, and as I say, although that wouldn't have been obvious at the time, you can see that the changing international system was, was putting pressure on Britain's command of the sea at the time. So this projection of sea power embodied in, in the college is very important. Mm. Uh, I think is reflected in, in the choice of architect, which if people don't know who, who he is, they often know what he's most famous for. Other yeah. than, uh, and that's Sir Aston Webb, who would go on to redesign the frontage of Buckingham Palace just a few years later. So clearly he was well thought of, otherwise he wouldn't have been allowed to potentially mess up Buckingham Palace, of course. Well, no, definitely no pressure there <laughs> whatsoever. So in 1905, the new magnificent building opened and how different was it to the to the the college today um, well obviously in in sort of material terms it wasn't particularly different because structurally uh, the college uh, hasn't changed tremendously it's obviously been added to the one of the biggest changes happened after the war when it became a, an 18 year old entry from 1955 onwards so the big dormitories went and were replaced by single birth cabins, particularly in the, the, the front main buildings of A, A and B block. And actually, the college was pretty was really quite modern when it opened in terms of having things like central heating and hot and cold water, uh, electricity, 
so in many respects, it, it didn't require immediate modernization. And so, as I say, fundamentally, the college perhaps hasn't changed all that much. And it certainly used to be the case, less so now because they've, they've changed it, but people would walk into the college and immediately smell the polish mm. for the wood floors and instantly be taken back to whatever year it was, however long ago it was uh, that, uh, that they were there. Uh, and then they'll notice the little changes. I mean, the main corridor itself, the main drag has changed. I mean, just after I arrived was the first major change because originally all the old class photographs had been along the main corridor, all these black and white photographs going back to actually before 1905, there were photographs from, from the days of Britannia there. And they went the whole length, both sides, two or three layers deep from one end of the, uh, the college to the other, from the chapel end to the senior gunroom end. But those were deemed to be a little bit old fashioned uh, and uh, public schooly, so they uh, were got rid of. Eventually, some paintings were, some prints were, were put along there, but they weren't terribly substantial. And more recently, though, something I'm quite excited about is um, now along the main drag, uh, we have a timeline, a chronology, going from the chapel to the senior gun room, so long, long way. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's an entire history of the college from Britannia arriving in 1863, right up until... I think it finished in 2018, which is when uh, we unveiled it. And there's three lines to this chronology. So the top one is the college, the middle one is the Royal Navy, and the bottom one is sort of global and national events. So you can see how all three lines interact, which nicely makes the point that I always try and make, particularly when talking to cadets, is how the college, sometimes it might appear, particularly when you're under training, that it exists in its own sort of bubble and it's kind of cut off from the, the rest of the Navy and indeed the rest of the world. But actually, it's very much reflecting what's going on in the wider fleet and in the wider world, because otherwise it, it wouldn't have survived uh, as long as it has. Mm. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, going back to what you said there about the smell, it does have a distinct smell, that, that main building that I don't think you would get anywhere else. I mean, as I was telling you earlier, I, I was a senior eight when I went to Dartmouth through the senior upper yardman route so I only spent seven weeks at Dartmouth so it was you know it went it went in a flash it was so busy but I'll never forget the smell that's something that will never leave me <laughs> so after so the current campus opened in 1905 and between 1905 and kind of the First World War was there anything specific that happened or changed at the college I mean, when, once the college opened, it, there was still building work going on for a start, because even before it was opened, it was already not going to be big enough, because such is the rapid expansion of the Navy at that time, which is why two years before Dartmouth opened, the junior college at Osborne on the Isle of Wight, and the stable block of Osborne House opened. So that actually, until Osborne closed in 1921, we were hoping to do something for the centenary of the closure of Osborne. Mm. Uh, events are kind of conspired against that. Uh, so actually cadets uh, for that period would have spent two years at Osborne and then and two years uh, at Dartmouth. Uh, meanwhile, E Block, the little block in the middle yep. of the back of the college was built, which is where the, the Free Church and Church of Scotland Chapel is now. C Block or Cunningham Block, although it opened in 1905, was a, a later addition. D Block wouldn't be constructed until the First World War 
uh, itself. But actually, what the, the biggest uh, event, of course, of this period was the, the First World War itself. Uh, and to a certain extent, the college was built almost in expectation of, uh, of such a conflict. And although you, you might think, well, it's not until the Second World War that the college itself directly becomes victim uh, or when the college is bombed. But actually, I think that the First World War had a much more dramatic impact uh, on the college itself in, in terms of the cadets, because what we tend to overlook and certainly has been overlooked, I've been trying very hard to make people aware of this, but in 1914, the entire college was mobilised just a few days before the outbreak of war captain of the college had received this telegram on the 1st of August and within 24 hours the college was practically empty and that mobilization included all of the cadets mm. bearing in mind what I said earlier about the fact that they were still essentially civilian schoolboys. Uh, some of them just arrived from Osborne uh, arrived earlier that term so back in May literally just 15 years old only halfway through their training but immediately sent uh, to join the fleet. I mean, it seems inconceivable mm. by today's standard. And even if you think about the First World War time, you know, people would lie, men would lie about their age because you had to be 17, 18 to join the army. But here you've got 15 and 16 year olds, and it's not just officers, I have to say. All ranks and rates, 15 could go to war at sea. You can't go to fight the war on the land, which perhaps is a... Uh, something of a sort of reflection on the fact that you'd had the obviously the boys joining Dartmouth age 13 anyway the idea that life at sea is something that needs to be adapted to and you're more adaptable when you're that young so mm. uh, it, it's uh, only to be expected but it's just also just the lack of outrage uh, that there, there was at this even amongst the parents of these boys rather than sort of horror at what was happening there was a mixture of 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 pride obviously you'd expect that but also you know that actually not not only were they proud but actually they thought they were lucky in a way that they were getting such an opportunity so early in their lives and in their careers which uh, just just seems unfathomable today really oh yeah completely so when they when they went to see what kind of jobs would they have been doing during the war and what things would they have been involved in so they i mean they would have been doing um all the sort of i don't know precisely what they were doing <laughs> absolutely honest. uh but they would have been pretty much uh, your dog's body as shipment i mean there's a great story which uh, maybe now's the the time to, to tell this about one of the cadets that was mobilized in 1914 there's a, a when you go into the chapel, anyone who knows the chapel at BRNC might have noticed that on the right-hand side, just as you go in, there's a great big brass plaque. Mm. And it's the only such plaque in there. It's quite incongruous, really. Uh, and it wasn't originally intended for Dartmouth. It was intended for Osborne, because, of course, this was one of the first termers who'd only spent a few weeks at Dartmouth. So it, it really meant very little to him or his family. But anyway, uh, the plaque is to a midshipman uh, Herbert Lawson Riley, and uh, he was one of those uh, first termers who was mobilised on the 1st of August, and he found himself and his classmates at Chatham. From there, he joined HMS Abu Kia, 
And the Abakir was, was one of three elderly cruisers together with Cressy and Hope that were sunk just off the Dutch coast on the 22nd of September. So literally just a few weeks after uh, leaving Dartmouth. Wow. One of the earliest submarine attacks of the war and of course ever really. So very early days in terms of submarine warfare. Uh, anyway, the, the, the whole, all three of them, the ships were eventually sunk. Over 14,000 men were killed on that day. But of those, 15 of them, 13 of them were the 15-year-old midshipmen, including, of course, Riley. And we know what happened to Riley because by pure coincidence, on almost exactly the centenary of, centenary of his death, one of his descendants, because Riley had two sisters, was visiting the college on one of the public tours. I wasn't even there, but fortunately, the guide on that particular day was one of our trustees. So when these descendants of Riley's sister offered us Mrs. Riley's photograph album and scrapbook, oh, wow. uh, it bit off their hands. So we've got this complete, I mean, it actually is a complete history of poor old Bertie Riley from his early days uh, as a baby, right up to the last summer holidays, or what were to be his last uh, summer holidays. I mean, it's really quite, quite sad. It's one of the few things that actually gets me quite emotional when I'm talking about anything related to, to the history of the college. So what happened was Bertie was on the Abu Kir, which was the first uh, to be hit. And uh, he survived that together with a classmate called Duncan Stubbs. Uh, and they made it on board the Cressy. Then the Cressy was hit. I mean, some people would be torpedoed three times and still survive, but this is as far as uh, Stubbs and, uh, and Riley get. Uh, initially, they, they're okay. They get off. They manage to find themselves a sort of makeshift life raft so that when somebody asks them if they want any help, they, they turn down their offer of help and say, go find somebody who needs help. But then the next thing we hear, because all, all of this is recounted in, in a letter in Mrs. Riley's scrapbook, the next thing they hear is somebody shouting out for help. Clearly, this chap is, is drowning. So the two boys go over to try and rescue him. And of course, the inevitable happens because these two small boys, this is a fully grown bloke who's literally fighting for his life. And he ends up dragging the, the three of them down. And that's the last anybody sees of them. And it's just, it is so touching because you've got this intimate history, really, of Riley. And all these letters from his classmates and his divisional officers saying what a lovely boy he was. And then this photograph showing what, what I find quite amusing is he's there in his uniform and clearly his mother had bought it for him to grow into. And so of course he never does because by today's standards as a 15 year old, he looks more like a 12 year old. He was a tiny little boy. It's so tragic. But as I say, the overall response and there's cuttings in Mrs. Riley's scrapbooks, you know, letters to the Times from the, the mother of a midshipman, you know, saying, how dare anybody suggest they shouldn't be there, that it's their right to be there. And the fact that they've got so much more to sacrifice makes their commitment that much greater and how that should be celebrated. And it's just heart rendering. Uh, and then just to add insult into injury until the end uh, until after the Second World War, in fact, Dartmouth was fee-paying. It was essentially a subsidised public school for the Navy. And as midshipmen, they were still considered to be under training, so their parents were still paying fees. 
And so the only concession made, and this continued throughout the war, cadets spent on average half as much time at Osborne and Dartmouth as they would have done during peacetime. Uh, if your son was killed after, say, six months, you could get a rebate of half your annual fees. You weren't going to get the bit back for the training you had. And I think you had to prove, you know, some sort of financial hardship as well to get this money refunded. But that just seems to be the ultimate insult to injury, really, that uh, the parents were paying for the privilege of having their underaged son actually at war. Hence, we see the big books of remembrance in the side chapel outside the main chapel for the First World War. They are 15 and 16 year olds. Uh, being killed, whether it's in the Atlantic or Gallipoli or Dogger Bank or, or Jutland, throughout the war. Uh, it, it's, it's really sobering, it really is. Mm. That's, that's made me feel quite emotional just thinking about that story. I mean, I, I hadn't heard that story before and that's so sad. And as you say, insult to injury that their parents then had to pay for the privilege of them being sent to war. Wow. Absolutely. And, and, and I think actually that the fact that because it's, it's a story I now tell, mm. uh, but it's one that we only came to know really on, over the last decade. And it's and I think it's just it's such a big story that you know, in this country we're so unaware of. And it's, it's great, actually, because occasionally, you know, in, in this job, I've managed to sort of tell somebody's story and get it out there. And that's one of the things I'm most proud of. I mean, Riley became a little bit of a, a star in his own right during the, the centenary of the Second World War. Because we, we were involved with a, in a project amongst the Devon Museums as, as a group. It was a heritage lottery funded project about Devon at war. And they chose uh, six, six or seven characters to tell the story of Devon at war. And Riley was one of them. So he got his own chapter in a book about Devon at War. He got to be on, uh, have a display made of him and his life at the uh, the Museum in Exeter, the Royal Albert Memorial Museum in Exeter. So you know, his story got out there a little bit, and that's that's quite rewarding. And he often gets a mention on Remembrance Sundays these days in the uh, the chaplain's sermon. So he and his classmates are being properly remembered now, which is great. Good. Oh, that is good news. Goodness. Okay. Well, you mentioned at the beginning of that story about the bombing in the Second World War. Shall we move? Shall we move on to that? Yeah. Sure. Again, this is another, or at least part of this story is is another element. One of those things that perhaps very widely known before Richard Porter and I started really researching the the, the centenary book. So yeah, the college was, was bombed on the 18th of September, 1942, uh, which actually seems quite late in the war, really. So we, we've got a theory that uh, Hitler is, is known to have had a number of prestigious buildings in mind that he would have used had he ever successfully invaded Britain. So we, we like to think anyway that he might have had an idea of, of using Dartmouth for his own purposes. But clearly by September 42, any such chances have been lost. So Dartmouth, and indeed the town of Dartmouth, becomes a target. The college itself receives two direct hits. One, if you're coming through the building from the main entrance onto the quarter deck, top left-hand corner, as you look into the quarter deck, took down that whole west side of uh, the poop deck, 
brought down the ceiling, caused the damage which you can still see mm. uh, to George V statue uh, at the end of the uh, of the quarter deck, which is why that's been left unmended as a, as a memento, a memorial almost to the bombing. And the first bomb actually hitting what was basically the stairwell in B block. So just to, to the right, to the east of the main entrance. And it was that bomb that was responsible for the only fatality. And the fatality was a petty officer rep called Ellen Whittle, who was working at the college as, as part of a general war effort. And unfortunately, she was fairly close to the stairs at the time because she was in the, the ladies' heads, which is in the same location as they are now. Uh, and we believe that, uh, that the system fell on top of her and that was what killed her. But even though that makes her the only serving person to ever be killed by the enemy on the college site, it didn't qualify her to be on the college war memorial in that same side chapel which has the books of remembrance because as it says on the walls in there that all the names listed on the wall are former staff and students of the college so although Ellen was working at the college she wasn't working for the college so on a technicality she's disqualified from getting her name on the wall happily though Ellen gets her revenge uh, two, two ways, really, she gets her revenge. One is being the infamous college ghost who haunts that area in front of the ladies' heads in the main entrance and uh, across the quarterdeck. That one's debatable. More officially, her revenge was in 2005 centenary year, a plaque was unveiled on the main corridor in memory of Ella. But then, just last year, and this is one of the um, happier results, perhaps, uh, of the COVID crisis, because of the increased number of, of ratings joining and because there wasn't sufficient capacity at HMS Rally and because there was more capacity at Dartmouth because certain training had been suspended, the first division of ratings to come under training at Dartmouth were given the name of Whittle Division after Ellen Whittle. So given that before... So I'm not going to take all the credit for this, but before Richard and I uh, had researched the book, her name wasn't even spelt correctly everywhere that it was written down. So to go from being sometimes Helen other than Ellen and having different numbers of letters in her surname, she is now a division at Dartmouth with the likes of Blake and Cunningham. It's, um, you know, that, I think that is something really, really special. No, that really is. That, that's, that's wonderful. I'm really pleased to hear that. And I remember that story um, when, we when I was on course at Dartmouth and we had that, the tour of the college and they, you know, showed us the heads and, they, and we, we learned the story. But I think my favourite story of my tour um, when I was on officer training was the story of when Queen Elizabeth or Princess Elizabeth at the time met Prince Philip, which was just before that, wasn't it? It was indeed. In fact, it was July 1939. It probably was meant to be a pre-war morale-boosting visit because it was probably known that war was fairly likely by then. So yeah, the King and Queen visited the college with their two daughters. Quite unusual to have the whole family really on a royal visit and it was over two days so it was, was longer than usual. But the King and Queen obviously had their official duties to do. And so they needed someone appropriate to look after and entertain 
two princesses. And of course, who better to look after a couple of princesses than a prince? And it just so happened that a certain Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark happened to be there at the time. Strictly speaking, he shouldn't have been there because he wasn't one of the 13-year-old cadets. He was what they called special entry. And these were boys who'd had a civilian education and on passing the admiralty exam at the age of 17 would usually have gone straight to sea for their training, much more like the pre-Britannia days system, really. But in 1939, that training ship, the Frobisher, was in refit. So instead, Philip's course has to come to Dartmouth, which I can't imagine they were terribly delighted about. They're going for an adventure at sea and they find themselves in a, a Devon backwater. But anyway, so Philip finds himself at Dartmouth, which of course proves to be perfect timing. His uncle, Mountbatten, of course, uh, is the king's ADC at this time, which puts him in a, a good position to, uh, to use this opportunity to introduce his nephew to the future queen. And so the rest is history, as it were. It would certainly appear from Elizabeth's point of view, it was pretty much love at first sight. We've got photographs of them playing croquet on the lawn in front of the captain's house. They're, they're rather grainy, fuzzy pictures, because of course nobody realised at the time just how significant this meeting was going to be. But it is certainly believed that Elizabeth never looked at another man after she met Philip at Dartmouth. They had actually met previously, but it would seem that this is the first time Elizabeth can remember meeting Philip. The other two occasions were both rather formal grown-up occasions, and I think if it's the first time she can remember meeting him, then that, that, that trumps all the pre, any previous uh, meetings, I think. So as far as anyone's really concerned, in, in Dartmouth anyway, this is where Philip and Elizabeth meet properly for the first time, and she will write to him throughout the war. He will spend more of, more of his leave period over the war with the, the royal family at Windsor Castle, and of course, 1947, they get married. So it all happened at Dartmouth, and started at Dartmouth anyway. Yeah. Have they been back since together? They have. Uh, I mean, they, they, they both went back to Dartmouth before she was Queen. And indeed, the last time the Queen visited in 2008, I think it was, it was supposed to be both of them. But Philip, unfortunately, had a chill. So the Queen had to come on her own, which was a bit sad. But certainly she, when she was there, she did mention the significance of Dartmouth to her family. Because, of course, it's not just where she met her future husband. I mean, her father, her grandfather, her uncle, uh, two of her sons uh, would all come through the college as well. So, you know, she's, she, she's not just met her future husband, but she's got other strong family links with the, the college as well. So um, I'm sure it, it has a special place in royal hearts nonetheless oh definitely I mean some of the there's a couple of lovely stories in your book about some of the royal family um when they've been at Dartmouth my particular favorite favorite is the story of her dad King George VI um when he wrote to his grandmother then Queen Victoria was George, George V George, George V when he wrote to his grandmother Queen Victoria um asking five pound pocket money uh, and she replied and refused. So he sold a, sold the letter to a fellow cadet for £5. <laughs> so he got I mean, the, the whole idea went, because it was a bit 
controversial or considered a bit controversial to uh, send not so much George, but his older brother, Edward, because of course that George wasn't the oldest uh, of his father's children. Mm. Edward died relatively young during uh, an influenza pandemic in uh, 1892. Uh, and a second son, actually, well, it wasn't so controversial uh, for George to come, but the two boys were very close, so they didn't want to split them up. Uh, so they were both allowed to come to Dartmouth on the understanding that they would be treated like any other cadet. And so the Queen's argument to, uh, to her grandson is then, you know, there might be boys there whose grandmothers can't afford them to send extra pocket money because they got, well, they, it was paid as if it was paid, but it was essentially pocket money they were given uh, on a regular basis, which was taken from their, their parents' fees. So her argument was, well, not everybody's granny can do that. So you've got to be like every other cadet. I can't help thinking that whoever he sold the letter to got the best end of the deal there. <laughs> yes. Somebody with a private letter signed by Queen Victoria. Um, that had to be worth a small fortune a few years later, I'm sure. Yeah, I wonder where that letter is now. Mm. That'd be interesting to find out, probably in, you know, some family heirloom somewhere It'd that somebody's nice got that. safe. Yeah, well, if, if any of the listeners know where this letter is, reach out to Jane because she would like it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, excellent. And then there's another story um, that I liked about Prince Charles, and I think this, this sums him up completely. Um, when he arrived at Dartmouth, he drove himself in his Aston Martin as, a, Martin, as opposed to getting the train like everybody else. Um, however, when he arrived and was driving up the ramps to meet the captain, it broke down. <laughs> So he had to be pushed. (laughs) Of course, it's the same Aston Martin that uh, both his sons have used and been seen driving uh, up and down uh, the Mall and and, uh, elsewhere. But unfortunately, not the the best start to his time at Dartmouth to have to be uh, unceremoniously pushed around the ramps, uh, which is is a bit sad. There is, of course, another story about Prince Charles, uh, for which uh, I have less... um, ballad collaboration um, but it is true that it is a story the story is that he is supposed to have uh, driven a motorbike along the main drag uh, which probably did not happen uh, although and this is it's a great from a historian's point of view this is a great one of those great examples of where you need to be slightly careful about people's memories and what they recall because I've heard I've spoken to people who were there at the time who will swear that he did as well as those that will swear that he didn't uh, and as I said, the weight of evidence is that he didn't. But nevertheless, it is a bit of a Dartmouth legend uh, that Charles is uh, supposed to have done this. Uh, and in fact, I decided to, to test the waters when Prince William came to the college. He was only here for four days, but he did get a historical tour. So I did throw in the, uh, well, when your father was here, so he was supposed to, have, but he just laughed. Uh, so I, I got no confirmation one way or the other uh, whether that was true or not. So if you, you can make your mind up. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It's not historically important, but it's no. a good. <laughs> it is a good dip. Never let the truth get in the way of a good dip. Absolutely. <laughs> That's what they say. Um, but Prince Andrew also came to the college as well. Is there anything that he did that was particularly significant or funny? Huh? For some reasons, the best stories are all about Prince Charles. Uh, Because Prince Andrew did, however, 
Uh, and I have to be honest, I, ha I haven't listened to it, it's in, to it in, in its entirety yet, but um, a few years ago, we did something called uh, Britannia Voices, which was an oral history to give us an, an insight into what it was actually like to be a cadet at the college as opposed to the official history, which uh, we, we already know. Uh, and actually we interviewed over 60 former cadets altogether, going back to the 1930s when they were still 13 year old schoolboys. Uh, and Prince Andrew uh, was uh, our senior interviewee. Uh, so a couple of my colleagues got to go to Buckingham Palace and, uh, and to talk to him. Uh, but as I say, I have to admit, I haven't uh, listened to uh, the whole thing. But one, one thing that did strike me uh, from that interview uh, as, as quite um, touching really was uh, that the first time uh, Andrew got to wear uh, his naval uniform was actually at Mount Batten's funeral uh, oh. in 1979. So I thought that was that was quite telling. Uh, but of course, Andrew did what second sons are supposed to do uh, and have a naval career. Uh, it's Prince Harry let us down in that respect uh, by choosing to have an army career for some inexplicable reason. Yeah, it's very disappointing, isn't it? Absolutely. He would have been a great sailor. Yeah. But speaking of 1979, that just reminded me of a story from a book um, that I have been reading recently um, called Secrets of the Conqueror, I mentioned to you earlier by Stuart Preble. Uh, and in the first chapter, there's a story um, about an officer cadet who um, got called, he'd, he'd finished Dartmouth and he was called by um, the captain of the, of the college at the time, Captain Hunt, um, to be pulled into a prank to be a fake Saudi Arabian prince and um, the captain pulled the whole kind of prank together. He paid for a convoy of free Blackstaff cars um, out of his own pocket. Uh, and when the fake Saudi prince came to the college, he didn't pretend he obviously couldn't speak much English. He had an entourage of um, extra people, one of which was his brother. The captain took them to the church for a service. During the service, he held the hymn book upside down. And at the end, they went to the quarter deck where there was essentially a clear lower deck of everybody at the cottage. Uh, and the, the prince's aide, um, for want of a better term, gave a speech on behalf of the prince and apologised for the poor surroundings um, and presented a cheque um, as a donation towards the refurbishment of, of a penny. And this was essentially the, the prank um, that Captain Hunt wanted to pull on his kind of senior leadership. Did I'm assuming probably not anymore, but is there, a, is there a, a lot of those kind of things that used to happen where the CEO would want to prank the college? So, as pranking by staff and students alike uh, was definitely uh, a feature historically. I mean, uh, in my time, more recent times, the, the occasional bit of livestock appearing uh, on the quarter deck or a colleague of mine not that long ago went into his office one morning to find a sheep uh, in there. <laughs> um, sadly, most of these things tended to sort of uh, die out somewhere in the 1990s, just before I arrived. But one of my colleagues likes to tell the story of a prank on uh, an American exchange officer uh, who uh, was given a tour of all the, the key departments. And it was all a send up. He was sent up to stores uh, where he was required to draw out his standard issue Labrador. Uh, he met uh, the deputy director of studies uh, who was in his office, sort of dressed as a hippie with his, his sandals, 
my uh, my predecessor as, as curator was dressed up as a sort of Lovejoy character, sort of dodgy, um, rather dodgy character. Uh, all done, you know, completely straight faced. So this is this is what you do when you come uh, to Dartmouth. Uh, and certainly historically, and I think this might have even happened genuinely during Prince Charles's time as well, you know, taking apart cars and rebuilding them in, in funny places. Of course, you can't do that with modern cars uh, so much. I think there is a photograph actually in the archive. Uh, I think it's an Austin 7 or something like that uh, in the bar of the wardrobe, uh, which must have been taken apart uh, to, uh, to get in there. So things like that. Uh, certainly used to be a feature, but sadly everybody's too busy these days, I think. Uh, yeah. I'll take, which is sad. Yeah, that is a shame. Yeah. Okay. So, so you've been at the college now for 1997. So, well, 24, 24 years. years. Yeah, I was just trying to do some quick maths there. 24 years. Um, yeah. What's changed in the last 24 years that, you, that you've been there? Well, certainly well, the, the lack of pranks, I think it's become more serious. Mm. Uh, I think, uh, and that's a reflection uh, of how the, the training has, has been sort of um, more condensed. Uh, we're doing at least as much in a, sh in a shorter time uh, than we used to. Uh, so. Uh, we seem to be much busier. The terms are actually longer. So there's 15 whole weeks of training, whereas in the past terms were 14 weeks. Uh, and certainly in terms of academic delivery, we only we delivered for 12. So we had far more time. Uh, there were more academics. There were twice as many academic staff uh, when I joined. We're, I think we're 14, 15 now. It was over 30 uh, when I joined. So uh, we've become uh, much, much smaller. Um, obviously, like with everyone else in the Navy, contractualizations, far less uniformed personnel uh, around far more contractors. Uh, I started off as a civil servant and then became University of Plymouth. That's all about to, to change uh, again very shortly. So um, a lot has changed, but at the same time, an awful lot has stayed the same. Uh, I mean, the building has, has remained pretty much the same. One of the improvements, actually, uh, sort of related to that is though that uh, I think the heritage of the college has been more appreciated uh, in the last uh, 10, 15 years or so. Uh, and I think having the museum has, has helped that. But I think generally speaking, it's recognised that whereas in the past, uh, perhaps didn't want to emphasise that the college was so old and didn't want to talk about history because that was all backward looking, uh, but a recognition that, you know, that the history and the heritage of the college is, a, is, a un is literally a unique selling point. Mm. Uh, and that actually it brings something unquantifiable in terms of, of the ethos of the training that, that takes place and perhaps makes up for uh, the sort of curtailment of, of training for to a certain extent and that actually uh, the heritage has a, a really important role uh, to play in, in moulding uh, future naval officers. Uh, and uh, things like naming Whittle Division, uh, you know, I think that that is sort of a recognition of, of that. So um, some things have changed uh, to be less comfortable, but other things are, are changes for the better. And that, from my personal experience, obviously, uh, that is one of the, the most positive uh, changes is the, 
the recognition of the importance of, of heritage that it, it's something that's you know it's not not a matter of money it's it's something more valuable than that yeah it's, it's, it's the experience as well isn't it i mean it's different in so many ways to training at hms rally and obviously for the officer the you know the officer cadets that join straight away it's 30 weeks is a very long period of time as opposed to eight or ten weeks i can't i can't remember what i did or what it is now but it's around that mark so it's a long time and it is all about the heritage and the traditions of the college that you you know you you learn a lot more about it and you you feel it when you're there you know the the plate the placing of it having the sankey and the, and the river right there and the picket boat lessons that i was so ter <laughs> terrible at. <laughs> you know it's def it's definitely the feel is a lot different from dartmouth to to rally or probably any other training establishment absolutely and i think you know that that has um more impact i mean i don't know because i mean you've got better idea than me really but i'm sure you know just the seven weeks or whatever that you were at dartmouth will have had more impact on you because it was at dartmouth than if it had been at rally that it's just got something that 1960s breeze block blocks don't have <laughs> mm, it's the floor it's that beautiful beautiful yeah. floor on the quarter deck <laughs> So you mentioned just to touch on briefly that so recruits are at Dartmouth now because of the, the coronavirus situation. How how badly has coronavirus kind of impacted training and how has it changed things in the last what 10, 10 11 months that we've been well, going yes. through? It? I mean, it's, it's nearly it's nearly a year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, come uh, March. Uh, so it, it has had an impact inevitably. Um, we didn't have uh, any new entry uh, in May, uh, which obviously then has a trickle-down uh, effect across the college uh, and beyond. Uh, the new entry this term uh, had to be sent home uh, because despite rigorous testing, uh, there, were, there was an outbreak. Um, so that's kind of inevitable. Uh, teaching has gone, a lot of teaching has gone uh, online. I mean, I, I was responsible for historical first because I gave the first Zoom lecture to uh, PRNC cadets uh, back in uh, May last year, so that that was uh, that was something. Um, so you know, inevitably, uh, it's had an impact. But of course, it's not the first global pandemic that the uh, the college has has had to go through. Uh, obviously, a hundred years ago, the Spanish flu came to Dartmouth, uh, and it would appear that uh, the response was pretty similar uh, to what it has been. You know, cadets confined on board, not allowed to go uh, out of Dartmouth, not allowed to go home, uh, and, and trying to just uh, contain uh, the spread as, as much as possible and carry on uh, as much as normal, uh, as normal as is possible uh, under uh, current circumstances. Mm. And you've had recruits from Raleigh come down to, is it just to do the passing out parade or are they actually... No, they've done, they've done their whole uh, initial training at Dartmouth, which of course means they passed out of Dartmouth, mm. uh, which, is, uh, which is the first. Uh, so again, hugely, hugely historic. I mean, whether that's uh, a model for the future... Uh, I don't know. I mean, there are always rumours about the future of Dartmouth, and one of the rumours that keeps coming back is that they want to combine officers and, and ratings training. And could they do that at Dartmouth? Could they do that at Raleigh? Probably they 
they can't do both together simply because there isn't the, the, the capacity. And I think if Dartmouth was at full capacity for officer training, it would be uh, much more difficult. But, you know, it's shown that it is possible and the world has continued to spin on its axis, having ratings and officers training not quite under the same roof, but in the same establishment, it is doable, whether it will be uh, required or desired afterwards is, is another matter. Mm. Uh, but uh, it, it's, still, it's still a significant event, which wouldn't have happened had it not been for COVID. Mm. No, definitely. And are you on the, you know, are you on the up of going, going back to a more full-time basis at the college or is it things just kind of play it by ear at the moment to see how it goes it's it's very much a, a play it by ear uh, at the moment uh, this term uh, has been really quite disrupted uh, well mainly for for the new entry uh, fortunately that the second term is the marinization uh, they seem to have gone safely to their initial C training so got away with that hopefully the the short courses like the SUYs uh, will still be coming because of course they're smaller groups mm. so they can be kept further apart they're particularly with their living accommodation can, they can be more uh, separated and I think that that was was part of the the, the problem uh, with uh, with the marinization is too many people too close together which with the new variants uh, just uh, was never going to work uh, so hopefully the rest of this term can kind of be be rescued but uh, hopefully next term who knows fingers crossed yeah fingers, fingers crossed we go back to normal soon or the new normal the new normal yes yeah officially distanced sanitized within an inch of your life new normal yeah but hopefully surrounded by people i mean i think that's one of the biggest things that everybody's missing isn't it just being surrounded by absolutely. people absolutely i mean it's great that we've been able to carry on with uh, with our lectures and seminars uh, on zoom but it's not the same. Uh, but I mean, again, that's kind of a good thing uh, because it proves that you still need individual, even with all the technology, uh, there's, there's no substitute for having uh, students uh, and, and lecturers or instructors in the same room uh, and that you can't get the same uh, rapport uh, if you're all separated and talking to your own laptops and what have you. Uh, so it, it can be done, but it's still not as good as being in person. So I'm really looking forward to getting back into a socially distanced, uh, well-ventilated classroom uh, <laughs> and having your students uh, in front of me. We did have a brief period uh, in September and the beginning of October when, when that happened. And it's funny how much you appreciate it when you haven't had it for a short time. Mm. It's a, it's a good opportunity to um, reevaluate a little bit, I think. Yeah, most definitely. Well, Jane, thank you. I know that you um, have a hard stop and you have another meeting to get to. So <laughs> thank you so much for your time um, today. This has been fascinating. I've learned so much and it's been wonderful to hear your stories uh, and your take on the history of Dartmouth. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, I always have an opportunity to uh, have a good old dish. No, most definitely. Thank you so much and take care. All right. Thanks, Janet. Stay safe. You too. Bye bye.